Welcome to episode 76 of the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm Brittany Lombas. And we are recording in Brittany's apartment in Pidgeotown, New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp Flicks. Yes. Brittany, it's Mardi Gras season right now. We've already started planning Crew Divine stuff. We did like a makeup test the other day. Starting to like get costume specifics together. And it's getting real. It's crunch time, I think. Yeah. This is one of those times of years where after it's over with, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to plan my costume and my throws and crap like that so early next year. And I said, I feel like I said that like a week ago, but it was, it's been a whole year. Yeah. But I do have like my outfit, which I'm proud of myself for because I usually wait like super late. And then I'm like frantically running to Goodwill's trying to find like things in a certain color in my certain size, which last year I couldn't find a teal skirt. for my Edna Turnblad outfit and by the grace of God at Goodwill on Tulane Avenue there it was I gotta say yours look last year was my favorite the flowers and the blouse I felt like so motherly where I'm like you know (laughs) I don't like kids but I could pretend for my girl (laughs) yeah kind of like a white uh white wine drunk uh mom look going on (laughs) yeah that's the kind of mom I would be I'd just be drunk all the time uh, it's also like crunch time for like Oscars right now too. I've been like mm-hmm. binging a lot of Oscar movies. I don't want to like run down each like Oscar film I've watched in the last like month because uh-huh. it's been like six in the last two weeks. I could go through real quick though. Like I did not like the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Okay, no, this is good because I haven't seen any of it, and I really want to know like what's worth me like taking the time to see before the oscars that one like the first segment that's like the singing cowboy that's like the titular buster scruggs uh-huh. that's really funny and really great as like a short film and the rest of it was like a really boring western that i wasn't interested in gotcha so i didn't like that i thought minding the gap which is the skateboarding documentary yeah. and cold war which is the polish romance i thought they were both fine i liked them okay shoplifters and can you ever forgive me i thought were really good like really good character studies and really well made and mm-hmm. you know weird on the fringe characters in this like shitty world we live in really liked their like dispositions and like Roma I thought was fantastic and I loved it way more than I thought I would but all of those movies have been like talked to death on like every other show uh-huh. and all of the Oscars coverage we've been hearing from the past you know half a year since like Oscar buzz starts like in the summer now so what other stuff have you been watching besides like Oscar related things and in between making Mardi Gras costumes and hot gluing shit together. I've been watching the furthest from any Oscar related movie. Good. (laughs) One film I'm talking about two today that I've seen recently that I want to bring up. One is horrible and one is like possibly the best movie that came out so far this Ah. year. I'm going to talk about the shitty one first so I can end on a good note. The shitty one is the 1997 uh, Canadian-American made-for-TV movie, Trucks. <laughs> I've never heard of that. For good reason. So this is based on Stephen King's short story, Trucks, which is what he used um, for Maximum Overdrive. So this is very similar to Maximum Overdrive, but it was made years later. 
which to like be clear, both you and I love Maximum Overdrive. Yes. It's a great trash it's pick. so good. Yeah. So good. So I was like really excited to see that. But this movie just feels so weird and out of place. Like it shouldn't have been made because the truck's short story was the inspiration for Maximum Overdrive. It's been done. Just put it to bed and move forward. Which he like wrote and directed it himself. Right? Yes. Like the, that movie was... Basically him on like a ton of coke, like making his own film for the first time. Amazing. Yeah. Right. Yes. This, I mean, I don't really think he had anything to do with it, but it's it's similar. It's this, I don't even think it's a desert town, but it's a small, all-American town. It's really dusty, so I'm assuming it's a desert or it's just full of dirt. Um, <laughs> it's very dry. And same shit. People are stuck at this like diner gas station and it's like a crap ton of people who are like useless characters that we really don't care about and trucks start to come to life (laughs) and it's just trucks. There's no like egg blenders and like soda machines. (laughs) No. That's such a bummer. Yeah. It's just and it's just trucks. I don't even think there's like SUVs, cars. It's like 18 wheelers and work trucks. And it's all of a sudden they start uh, moving on their own and then they start to communicate with each other. Like they start like blinking and pumping (laughs) horns. And then, you know, all the people who are stuck in this diner are like, they're communicating. Like it's, they're progressively getting smarter. There is something that's so amazing that happens in this movie that it is worth watching this movie for this scene. It's sort of whenever the truck's, start to come to life in this small town and there's a postman walking down the street delivering mail and he hears like a thump at the door and inside of the house where he just dropped mail off at is a Tonka truck (laughs) and the camera at one point is like on the level of the Tonka truck it is so weird well the truck busts through the window and it gets out of the house And then it keeps ramming the legs of the postman. And at one point it hits him so hard that he tumbles over. And then while he's down, the truck like backs up and it comes like full force and hits him in the head. Oh no. Over and over again (laughs) until like he dies and there's like blood all over and there's like pieces of blood and gore like on the top of this Tonka truck and it just speeds off into the distance. So it was just so fucking weird. I'm trying to remember. I feel like we've seen a movie recently that had like a slasher scene set in a house where like a car was inside the house, like hunting someone down. I'm thinking of maybe Mm. either the babysitter from Netflix or maybe strangers pray at night. Like one of those two. I think the strangers pray at night. Yeah. But I really like the idea of like a vehicle in a home, like, chasing someone or like busting through rooms to like you know (laughs) hunt someone down like as if it's like jason or something yeah well there's that movie i saw it years ago but it's a duel do you remember that movie Duel? uh, that's um spielberg's first yes i actually have never seen that oh it's probably the best like car horror film on it's like on the level of christine where it, it it legitimately is scary and it gives you anxiety where this is just super silly shit that it's fun to watch, you know? I'm sensing a podcast topic here because I haven't seen cars? Christine since I was a kid uh, either. Maximum Overdrive is a 
favorite. I think and we could throw something together yes, here. Let's do it. And Christina is very easy to find. Vehicular homicide episode. Ooh, oh my god! <laughs> and then we can like do some research because I'm sure there's like some other crap out there that we have no idea about. I was thinking about doing one soon about killer elevators too because they just put up a new one on Hulu. Is that like into the? I dark watched series? it. It's um called Down, mm-hmm. and it's it's a Valentine's Day movie. Oh, that's true. Yeah, because <laughs> it they're stuck in the elevator on Valentine's Day. Uh, it's it's Valentine's Day right now when we're recording this. Uh, oh, full weird. Disclosure. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. I don't know. I guess I could talk a little bit about Down because I did see it. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking because there was a couple in the seventies or the eighties. One's called like The Lift. Oh my there's god. Another Is that one a British. I don't film The Lift. There's a couple like killer elevator oh, and then movies, Devil. and I thought it'd be funny. Oh, Devil's a good one too. Are yeah, because we're talking about M Night Shyamalan today, yeah. and he produced that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's. I mean, I get scared with that kind of stuff because I work on the 27th floor, and I take two elevators to get to my office every day, and I hate it. Every time I'm in, I'm like, if this breaks down, I'm gonna be stuck with this asshole for God knows how long. <laughs> and one time, the elevator did stop. And it got like I was stuck in it with um, a coworker that I really like, so it was fine. But then there was this other chick in the elevator who was like so frantic. She was like pushing the button, and then the people were like, "Hello," and she's like, "We're stuck in here. Oh no, let us out!" <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh my god, we're gonna run out of oxygen. I'm gonna have to like kill one of them so they don't breathe my air." Um, <laughs> and you know, I like immediately go to like, "What's the worst thing that could happen?" Right. So, anyways. Aside from that, you know, elevator horror is a true thing that I would love to explore. And killer trucks is kind of and similar. killer trucks. It's just like shit that we don't think is alive. I love that like 70s like schlock, like, you know, deathbed, the bed that yeah. eats and like stuff like that. It just like really, it's not that different from the, you know, killer internet right. stuff that I like as well. Yeah. I just love it when everyday like appliances just are. Just like, human killers are so boring. Right. So lame. We've done it. Right. Let's find more like inanimate <laughs> objects and kill us. You know what I always think would be interesting? Like, you know, those Febreze air fresheners that they let out the mist. Yeah. Like, what if it like produces poison? <laughs> it starts to like kill everyone. Yeah, I would watch the shit out of I that. I would love that. Um, so one last thing I want to say about trucks is. I recommend that everyone find the movie poster for it. And of course, there's probably several of them. But one, it looks like a bad Terminator. Like there's a flaming skull inside the truck. Nice. And it's really cartoonish and stupid and cheesy. And it's so fun. But the poster's better than the movie? Yes, 100%. <laughs> so for trucks, find the poster. Go to YouTube, find the Tonka truck mailman murder scene. mailman scene, and then just don't watch it. Because, like, I swear to you, there were so many, like, subplots. Like, each character, like, had a different, like, story and background and, you know, wah-wah kind of life that I, I don't, I didn't care. Like, it was just so useless where I'm like, let's just watch these trucks kill people. I don't care. <laughs> we about, know what we're here for. Yeah, I don't care about your marriage or, you know, your weird relationship with your kid. I just want the truck to kill you. <laughs> so the other movie that I'm like so in love with that I think is, like I said before, the best movie to come out of 2019 so far is Velvet Buzzsaw. Oh, I want to see this so bad. You would really like it. I've heard it compared to Neon Demon this week, which yeah. has my attention. So it's one of those movies where like Neon Demon was so fucking good, but like critics hated it. And this is the same shit. Yeah, people hate it. Where I'm like, people fucking hate this movie. And it's so awesome. So 
Velvet Buzzsaw is a film that is like a satire of like how pretentious the art world is. So it's really comical, but it's also very, it's a horror movie. So it's gory, but it's like very stylish, Uh, much like Neon Demon, how you have these like really gross, gory scenes, but they're so beautiful because of the colors and, you know, the the backgrounds and everything like that. It's laid out like a fashion shoot, like a magazine spread for like a fashion line. Right. And stills I saw from Velvet Buzzsaw also look like very fashionable and like high art. So it's so funny because Velvet Buzzsaw, like majority of the film takes place in a contemporary art gallery. Yes. Which I love contemporary art and I love galleries, but they're so creepy to me. Like everything is so pristine. Like, you know, everything's white. And then like the, the people that work at these galleries are very robotic and it just has this weird like it's cold yeah like it's cold and it's uncomfortable but i love that kind of shit i love being uncomfortable in a weird way double lover had a lot of that too where she's just like sitting <laughs> yeah. in that gallery with all that weird tumor art that's yes. like hanging up the walls yes so i thought it was so cool that like the whole film pretty much take, takes place in an art gallery which is a very scary place so it's a perfect setting for a horror movie but this film has a pretty big star-studded cast it's got jake gyllenhaal tony collette my queen renee russo and um i cannot pronounce her name but um zoe ashton i don't know her she's this british actress and her and tony collette actually play in this uh tv show together called wonderlust and that's when i first kind of saw this um zoe ashton actress in anything and she's so great like I love her and I really, really look forward to like watching other things that she's been in. Um, she's great in Velvet Buzzsaw. But yeah, so they're all they're all part of the art world. Um, Jake Gyllenhaal, his name is Morph. <laughs> <laughs> right. And he is an art critic. And his reviews are like the make it or break it for artists. So he's very like brutal and he's super over the top and ridiculous. And his character is so hilarious. Tony Collette, you know, she works at the gal- at a, a gallery. Um, I can't think of the name off the, of the gallery off the top of my head. Renee Russo, she owns the gallery and her kind of her protege is uh, Zoe Ashton. And they're the <laughs> the worst people ever <laughs> and they play those like shitty snobby like don't give a fuck about anything roles so well so what happens is uh morph is broken up with his boyfriend and he starts a relationship with josephina who is we ashton's character and she's kind of like i don't want to say like timid but she's not very like tough and as confident as like all the other characters she's kind of like if you had to pick the sweet one in the bunch it would be her and he starts a relationship with her and shortly after this happens she's in her apartment complex and she sees that one of her neighbors are dead and she goes into his apartment and he's got this like vault of artwork that he's done and when she looks at it like it's sort of like this I don't know, like you can tell like it's sort of this mesmerizing supernatural thing starts to happen and everyone that sees it, they're like, oh my God. So she steals his art and she's like, yeah, I found it in the trash and brings it to the gallery she works at 
and people go nuts for it. It become it like just blows up, becomes this huge hit in the art world, and she becomes a monster. So it's kind of like watching her become just like you know drunk with the power. others exactly yeah. drunk with power that is a great way of putting it that's exactly what happens but eventually i mean there's so much shit that happens in this movie that i don't think that this would be a spoiler but the paintings the guy that uh, made these paintings vitral deese he was a very troubled man and he expressed his troubles in his art where human blood was used in some of the paint and they're pretty much haunted <laughs> and the paintings like start to kill <laughs> yeah so it's so funny like there's some beautiful death scenes in this movie one is like graffiti leaks from a wall and takes over someone's body so nice. their whole body is just like engulfed in these beautiful bright colors a tattoo kills someone a tattoo on their body and in the gallery there's this um piece called the sphere and it's this big sphere that's like silver with a bunch of holes in it and it's like explore a hole <laughs> so you kind of as a person at the gallery you like stick your hand in one of the <laughs> holes and something happens nice well someone gets their hand stuck in the hole and it like rips their arm off and the next day they get a call and they're like well so and so's dead but everyone thought it was part of the <laughs> part of the art. So these kids were coming in from a school as like a, a class trip. And they saw like this dead body and blood everywhere. And they thought it was part of the installation. So they're like, you know, playing stomping in around it. in the blood, playing in the blood. <laughs> so it's like crazy stuff like that. It's very funny. But yeah, it's one of those. It's like a slasher movie where people just get like knocked off one by one, but it's not by a human being. It's by these like haunted paintings, which is very much in line with like the trucks, uh, yeah. the lift. Yes. There's this other movie coming out this year um, from this director, Peter Strickland, who did oh. the Duke of Burgundy, which is like my favorite movie from I think, yes. 2015 or 2016. Uh-huh. His new movie is called In Fabric and it's about a killer dress. Oh my god! Uh, so I'm very, uh, very much looking forward to that both that and Velvet Buzzsaw. Fabulous! Yeah. yeah, Velvet Buzzsaw is so fucking good. I've watched it twice so far, and the second time there were things I didn't notice because there is a lot going on. Like, there's a lot of characters. There's a lot of focus on like each character. Oh, John Malkovich is in it. I forgot to mention that. Like, it's it's just crazy. There's like so many great actors and actresses in this movie. I mean, you have me at Tony Collette. She's great. She's such a bitch in here, and it's. It's so funny watching her like play that kind of role. She's good at it. But yeah, so that's pretty much what's been taking up my time lately. Um, what about you? What have you been watching? I have a couple like older like sex movies that I watched recently. Cool. Uh, I guess I'll go with the one that I thought was kind of shitty and go leave on a nice yes. note as well. Yeah. Same, same kind of like that weird. It's not really a sandwich because a sandwich would be like positive negative positive this yeah. is like negative and positive so it's like a crostini <laughs> yeah it's an open face sandwich an open face sandwich it's very european <laughs> the one i didn't like and i slowly warmed up to it until the end when i really liked it was called the seven year itch the billy wilder movie oh, marilyn with monroe? marilyn monroe okay so this is the iconic movie where marilyn monroe goes over a sewer grate and blows up her skirt oh. uh, so that's where that image is from okay uh the movie is about this guy who's like a new york businessman and his family goes away for the summer, like all New York businessmen. They stay behind when it's hot and continue to work. 
and their wives and children go off to you know the Catskills and oh like, the Hamptons. Yeah, exactly. And they go the cool Berkshires. off by the lake while their husbands are you know poor poor them. The poor men have to like stay behind in the city. The movie's point of view is like actually it's a playground for men to drink and smoke more than they normally would and like have affairs with the like unmarried women of New York City. Since it's from the man's point of view, it's got this kind of gross, like, macho 60s vibe to it. Even though this is 1955, it feels a little bit like early Mad Men episodes. Gotcha. Like, very Don Draper-ish, like, macho attitudes that are very outdated. But the movie initially feels like you want to sympathize with the protagonist who's narrating a lot. Uh, it's from a stage play, so there's a lot of, like, you know, direct monologues to the audience about, like, this swanky lifestyle he gets to live while his wife's out of town. And Marilyn Monroe is his new upstairs neighbor who moves above his apartment and like is very flirty with him in this like ditzy kind of way. And he starts to cross a lot of boundaries in inviting her over and giving her champagne and like flirting with the idea of having an affair. And it's all very gross and very stupid. Yeah. But then you start to realize the movie's like making fun of him. And he has all these Hmm. like paranoid fantasies that start to mix with the fantasies about how into him that Marilyn Monroe is. He has these, like, mental reveries he goes off on where, like, the two of them, like, have an affair together and he, like, seduces her with his, like, macho-ness, even though he's, like, the blandest man you've ever seen in your life. And he also has these, like, paranoid fantasies about his wife finding out. He imagines the exact trail of someone noticing him out in public with this mistress Mm -hmm. and then the, like, gossip trail leading back to his wife. So it's not like oh, we should be careful. It's more like she already knows. Like he already saw in his head the trail that goes back to her. And you just start to realize this guy's just a paranoid psychopath. And by the end, it feels almost like Fight Club. Like you are not sure that Marilyn Monroe even exists in the film. (laughs) What? The seven? Wow. I did not know the seven year itch was like this insane. Yeah. It's a little subtly played where it was like annoying me that I felt like we were supposed to like have a laugh on this guy's part. And by the end, it was like, oh, yeah, he's just by himself drinking and, like, making up this woman that doesn't exist in this world at all. And he says loser the words Marilyn Monroe in the picture. So in the reality of the picture, Marilyn Monroe is an actor as well. So it seems like this fantasy is just completely, like, detached from reality. Cool. And it's just kind of like a weird note to end on. I don't know how much of it is intentional. A lot of it came up through the Hayes Code. They couldn't actually have sex, so their affair is never consummated. Mm -hmm. And uh, there were a lot of, like, POVs of her character where, like, she has sexual desire and she has her own, like, monologues from the stage play that were cut out for censorship. So we never get her inner life and we never get an idea of who she is as a result because it's been excised from the movie. Just makes her more mysterious. So we only get the inside (laughs) of this one man who becomes an increasingly unreliable narrator. Uh, until he, like, says out loud Marilyn Monroe at the end, which feels like this, like, trigger that's like, well, maybe none of this is real, and he's just, like, a fucking lunatic. And he's just, like, fantasizing about Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, and it feels like so interesting. all the pressures of, like, you know, classic masculinity from the 50s are just, like, weighing on this guy until his, like, mind snaps. Uh, so I don't know if I'd necessarily say, necessarily say it's a good movie. It's definitely nowhere near, like, Billy Wilder's best comedy. He's got a bunch of good movies from around that time. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely weird. And if you look at it through that lens of, like, this man is a lunatic and just raving at you for two hours, uh, it's kind of fun. And, you know, it's also in Technicolor and has really beautiful costumes. And it's, like, really pretty to look at. And Marilyn Monroe in this, like, draggy, high femme, like, oh, 
I didn't mean to like lean over so you could see right directly down my cleavage. Like she is such a brilliant <laughs> performer in this like comedic way. She plays it up really well. And anytime she's on screen is a breath of fresh air because you're not listening to this like milk toast man, you know, ramble at length. Sounds interesting. You know, I've, the only Marilyn Monroe movie I've seen is Some Like It Hot. Oh, great film. And it's good, but like I've never seen other movies with her. I really so. like uh, How to Marry a Millionaire. Mm. It's really good. Okay. This one is a mixed bag, but I think if you look at it through like that Fight Club, it's all in his head lens. Like it's actually a really fun like weird surreal experience on top of it being like a half-assed sex comedy that was um, severely censored by the Hays Code from its like <laughs> stage play origins. Another one that was actually much better, and this was after the Hays Code was broken. So this is like early New Hollywood directed by Paul Mazursky, who did An Unmarried Woman, which we're doing for Movie of the Month right now. Ooh, yeah. His breakout film is called Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. Have you ever heard of that? I have not. It's from 1969. It's a pretty famous movie because it's about group sex and like wife swapping. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> so you have Natalie Wood is married to like Robert Culp and they're these like hipster, like new age types. He's like a documentary filmmaker and, he, and she's his like artist wife and their best friends are this other couple. It's like Elliot Gould and this lady Diane something. I don't know. I don't know her name. So the four of them are in this very close friendship as, like, Mm -hmm. two couples. And the main couple, Bob and Carol, they go to this, like, very intensive 48-hour therapy session where they, like, break down the, like, barriers of, like, society and, like, get in touch with their true selves and, like, you know, really connect with other people the way that really, like, new age hippie bullshit. Uh, But they come back, like, true believers from this um, retreat and... They start to profess this, like, newfound hippiedom to other people. And the way the movie's sold is it's, like, this swinging sex comedy where it's, like, 1969, so this is, like, the free love era. Monogamy and, like, a marital structure is start- starting to break down. And, like, people mm-hmm. are, like, questioning, you know, what's the difference between, like, casual sex and, like, you know, polyamory? Like, what makes that, you know, any less valuable than, like, normal monogamy? So this movie's reflective of that. And you would think, like, oh, it's going to be this, like, swinging 60s, like, sex romp and, like, wife-swapping stuff. And that all comes at the very end, and it ends on this, like, down note, kind of like The Graduate. Like, it's not fun. It's, like, the movie's, like, Trojan horsing in this really smart, honest, like, brutally honest version of, like, therapy Hmm. drama. Kind of like an an unmarried woman, which is about a a divorcee, like, about 10 years after this was made. And it just really struck me as, like, a really beautiful, thoughtful picture. And it has a lot to do with, like, therapy and, like, performance art. So is it more, like, on the side of being a drama? Yeah. Yeah. At first when you said it, I was like, oh, this sounds like a a kooky comedy. It sounds like a Billy Wilder movie. It sounds like The Seven Year Itch or something. But it's it's really not. It's, like, this brave... Like, whenever you talk about therapy or, like, performance art, people... It's a very vulnerable subject to bring up. It's very Mm -hmm. personal and touchy. Right. And people are more likely to make a joke out of it. Even if just to, like, relax your mind and, like, let you go into it. There's very few filmmakers I feel like talk about therapy and performance art and, you know, this new age ooey gooey stuff with any, like, sincerity. And Paul Mazursky hits it head on in the few movies I've seen from him. And I don't know. I really appreciated nice. Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. Yeah, the way really you were good. explaining it, it sounds like an unmarried woman. Like that same vibe where it's very real and personable. Yeah, and even when the movie heats up and it actually gets to that like promised like group sex payoff, 
it is a lot more like intimate and honest and like you know it pumps the brakes and like hits this like emotional note you don't really expect it to there's this filmmaker josephine decker who i really like i've been like following her work recently and i think she does a lot of that like therapy and performance art stuff is she the one that had that documentary that you were telling me about? Flames. Flames. Uh, and she did Madeline's Madeline last year. Yes, I've seen Madeline's Madeline. Yeah, you know how, like, the performance art in that movie, like, seems like something usually someone would turn into a joke, but she, like, takes it seriously and, like, right. sort of explores it to its, like, full Like, degree. it doesn't feel silly at all. No, it's, like, creepy and, like, <laughs> yes. unnerving and, like, it catches you off guard and makes you nervous. I think that's, Paul Mazursky does that same thing. Hmm. Where, like, this couple arrives at this, like, intensive 48-hour therapy that's like unconventional and you would think that it would have this like cynical jokey like couples vibe. retreat or something <laughs> and it really doesn't it's like wow it kind of takes it seriously and it starts to like ask real questions and i don't know there's like a little bit of like ironic humor making fun of these hipsters for like thinking they're like cool hippie kids even though they're in their like middle age but the fallout of what that does to their lives and their marriages and their friendships like mm-hmm. is really like actually you know thoughtful and intimate and just watching Natalie Wood try to talk all of her friends and her husband into like a foursome is pretty fun too. Like, oh my god! Yeah, that's just fun in its own way. I don't think I've seen her in a role like that. I've just really seen her in those very, you know, buttoned up. Yes. <laughs> Which I think the movie was playing on a little bit, you know. Okay. Yeah. Cool. That sounds really cool. Yeah. So if you like, if you liked an unmarried woman, I think that one's like kind of a central cinema. Nice. Well, today we're not we're talking about a central cinema. <laughs> we're not talking about uh, Oscar movies. We're talking about M. Night Shyamalan. Right. Who's like, I think in my eyes, I don't know if in your eyes, Oscar worthy. Well, let me get to it this way. <laughs> I had not seen pretty much any of his major works Sweet. until recently. Okay. And I've been watching almost nothing but his movies for the past two weeks. Gotcha. Having seen like all of his major works very recently, I believe this man is a fucking goofball and like a nerd. Uh, I think those are his main qualities. <laughs> he did make one movie that got six Oscar nominations, and that was The Sixth Sense. And as soon as he got those accolades, he, like, revealed his true nerd self to the world. <laughs> He's like, I've trapped all of you. Now here's all the real shit I want to do. Right. And I feel like today we're talking about four Shyamalan movies, mm-hmm. and they are all, like, him in full nerd. Yeah. Like, leaning into the biggest goofball impulses he has in his body. And I love it. I don't. Yes. I don't mean to say that disparagingly. No, no, no. I, I know what you mean. It's great. Cool. Yeah. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. Oh my God. This is like a moment from a horror movie. It's precisely the moment where the mutation or beast will attempt to kill an unlikable side character. But in stories where there has been no prior cursing, nudity, killing or death, such as in a family film, the unlikable character will narrowly escape his encounter and be referenced again later in the story, having learned valuable lessons. He may even be given a humorous moment to allow the audience to feel good about it. And now it's time for our regular Movie of the Minute segment. This is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. What did you make me watch this episode? I made you watch a M. Night Shyamalan modern day fairy tale. What a twist, an M. Night Shyamalan movie. <laughs> <laughs> right, surprise! Yeah. Called Lady in the Water. It is my favorite M. Night Shyamalan movie. I've seen it 
more than like any of his films and I love it every single time I see it. So that is kind of a twist because most people cite this as like one of his worst films. Exactly. Which I was blown. Like when this movie came out in 2006, I was 16 years old and the movie theater closest to my hometown was like 45 minutes away in Homa. And for the first, I think it was might have only been in theaters for two weeks, but I managed to see it five times in theaters. So that means I had to either like beg my mom to drive me out there <laughs> or like hitch a ride with someone and be like, you have to come see this movie. Let's go to the movie to see Lady in the Water. You're going to love it. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, yeah. So I turned a few people on to it. So I'll talk about what it is and we'll see if you're into it too. <laughs> um, so like I said, this is a, um, a modern day fairy tale that is something so this this film the plot of this film started as a bedtime story that M, M. Night Shyamalan would tell to his kids to be like this is what happens in our swimming pool at night and just to kind of add some weird whimsy to it and then he really fell in love with this story he made up and he published like a real book of it right to sort of coincide with the film as it was coming out yes yeah, so the book's um, Lady in the Water a bedtime story oh nice it's like 72 pages long that is the longest bedtime story book I've ever heard of. That's crazy. Right. What's wrong with him? <laughs> I don't own it. Um, would like to have it at some point. I saw that it was like, you know, two bucks on Amazon or something. It was probably like really like mass produced and he thought it was going to be a hit, but it wasn't. Because this was one of his first big flops. Yes. Like his movie has always had a little bit of like critical dissent, but they usually make money. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the first ones that did not make money the way that they should. Which I don't know why. Probably half of it was me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not for lack of you trying. Right, she went five I'm trying. Times. Yeah. So, well, anyway, so this film takes place at this really like drab apartment complex, which was actually built for this film, and the sort of like the maintenance guy, superintendent of the complex, his name is Cleveland, played by Paul Giamatti, Giamatti, and he's. Kind of this goofy loner type character that has a stutter. And one night he finds a sea nymph in his uh, apartment complex pool. And she is actually a narf. <laughs> That's, and everyone knows what a narf is. Everyone knows what a narf is. So she's a narf named Story. And this is played by Bryce Dallas Howard. Who you and she's I ruthlessly made fun of in Jurassic World. The worst. She was the worst in there, but she's so good in I here. thought she was very funny because she was so bad in it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is her using that like inhuman, just off kilter, not quite natural energy. <laughs> she's so good But she's at playing it. like a fantastical creature, so it's not that right. big of a deal. Right. Like she's very mysterious and like very whimsical. Um, so he finds her and she's injured because she's been scratched by a scrunt. Which we all know what that is. Yeah. It's a big dog that's made of grass. Of course. I went to school. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Good. Good. The education system is next, working. Next you're going to try to tell me what a tartuteric is. And I know yes. what that is. <laughs> it's a monkey made of branches. Of course it is. killed its parents when it was born. <laughs> I mean, we all know this. <laughs> it's, this guy is nuts. And I fucking love it. Oh, yeah. So... Yeah, all this shit is, like, not real folklore. It was made up by M. Night Shyamalan. So, almost immediately when Cleveland finds her, 
he like buys into this like oh my god she's a narf and she has a purpose she's looking for a vessel like he doesn't even really question it and just like believes the tale wholeheartedly and just wants to help her find her vessel so her purpose um she's from the blue world sent out to find a vessel her vessel is a writer so she knows it's a writer and he's writing something that is going to change the world he's writing this you know they don't know if it's like a book or an essay at this point but it's gonna inspire um an individual in the midwest and they will become president and they will change the world it's insane so he is trying to figure out like what the deal with this narf is like what's like what is he supposed to do to help her and it just so happens that there is an old korean woman in his apartment complex that knows the folk tale of the narf but she doesn't speak english and she has this super cool daughter who translates for cleveland to give him more information and she's not very willing to tell him a lot about this tale and the way that um, he gets her to give him more information about this like bedtime story so he can know how to help story is by acting childish and like having milk on his mustache and like sitting like a kid without his socks and like flinging his legs around and eating cookies. See, this is part of like what's <laughs> awesome about M. Night Shyamalan. I think what frustrates a lot of people is like that is fucking weird and it's, it's funny. So weird. And it, I think it's intentionally funny. Oh, yeah. But I think a lot of people aren't sure when the laughs are intentional and when they're not. I'm not saying that as a, as if I have like the key to it because I don't know either. But I really like that he has a sense of humor and you cannot tell when he's employing it. Like I'm yeah. supposed to take the narf seriously, but <laughs> I'm not supposed to laugh at him having a milk mustache. You know, like it's, it's weird. there's a weird like give and take there. He gives like a lot of control to the actors which is really nice it's kind of like they're this big family making this movie together because i've got the special edition dvd and it's got some great behind the scenes <laughs> of course <footage>. it does. <laughs> and one is like the whole you know paul giamatti you know cradling himself and eating cookies and he's full of milk and they like are loving it laughing about it but anyways cleveland gets the full story of like what he's supposed to do to help story fulfill her purpose and go back to the blue world so she needs to find the writer so he starts going around the complex and trying to figure out who the writer is and it's M. Night Shyamalan okay <laughs> okay Just, this is a man who makes movies and since the sixth sense so since the beginning he's been putting cameos in his movies like where he plays a small character usually right. with like a line or two but in The Lady in the Water, he plays a writer that will change the world. <laughs> and it's not like... Has he done that? Yes. Well, fair <laughs> this enough. This might be a true story. Maybe he really, in real life, M. Night Shyamalan did meet a narf. And it inspired him to write Lady in the Water. I mean, fair and enough. And it changed my life. <laughs> I just think it's funny that, like, he always has these, like, couple line cameos or, like, you know... He's trying to do this like Hitchcockian thing right. where he just like walks through the frame. You're like, oh, look, that's the director. But instead, it's like in this movie, it's a full blown role. Yeah, he's like he has, the main character. Yeah, he has a lot of scenes, uh -huh. and he is the most important writer in history. <laughs> and on top of that, there's this character played by Bob Balaban, who's like this movie critic, 
and everyone's supposed to hate them. So like M. Night Shyamalan's always had sort of dissenters in his like criticism. Like people are like, Oh, the emperor wears no clothes. He's not actually as good as the sixth sense uh, uh-huh. led us to believe, especially by now after like the village and signs came out and that movie had some like very loud detractors. So we have M. Night Shyamalan is this like all important hero writer and Bob Balaban is a movie critic and he is a villain that we're all supposed to laugh at and feel like, you know, <laughs> is like a loser. Uh, and he's like the only person to die. Oh, it's great. <laughs> and he has a very violent death. Yeah. He has this like monologue where he's like says, oh, this is where the unlikable character dies. So like, <laughs> the movie critic states out loud, yeah. like it's M. Night Shyamalan showing you like, I know what I'm doing here. I'm like saying movie critics are unlikable and that I am you know, this important thing that they don't see the full like value of. Right. And then he just has fun killing his enemy on screen. And you just have to love a goofball nerd who like beats up his bullies on screen. (laughs) It's so fun to watch. Yeah. Um, I did not make that connection. Oh, it's one of my favorite things about the movie, but you're so right. That's amazing. That makes me love him even more but yeah so if you don't think that this is confusing enough already and very elaborate with the scrunts the narfs and the i can't even think that tartuterix tartuterix of course once she finds her vessel or whatever she gets injured shortly after um by a scrunt which is a (laughs) cgi wolf made out of grass fucking awesome this green plant wolf yes and we as humans don't see them so whenever there's like mounds in the yard it's scrunts (laughs) and the research that they did to like come up with like what a scrunt was gonna look like is crazy like they they're like what do wild african dogs look like so they did all this research and like explore these like dogs and it was gonna be more of like a a wolf-like character and then it just became a grass beast yeah <laughs> i love it so well anyway so she gets injured and she's like slowly dying and in order to like heal her there needs to be like she so she has a guardian there's a guild a healer and a symbolist <laughs> that all need to come together to help her fulfill her journey and go back into the blue world. And she has one night to go back to the blue world where she's taken away by an eagle. So the whole movie are waiting for this giant eagle to come take her away. Right. So it just so happens that all these important people that are meant to help her do great things and help um M. Night Shyamalan do great things they all live at this complex and they just like so happen to be there and they're all connected and they all have these like huge purposes that are going to help change the world and later we'll be talking about the Unbreakable trilogy and it's similar like there's like a random event in Philadelphia where this fucking movie takes place too, that connects all these random people. And he was raised in Philadelphia. Yes. He was born in India, but he was raised in Philadelphia. Yes. So So it's just kind of interesting. Like he really likes that of like, I don't know. It made me feel good where he's like, you know, we all have a purpose. We're all meant to be 
wherever we're, you know, whether it's someone living in some shitty apartment complex in Philadelphia, like we're all here for a reason. We're meant to be here. It was just, it's just really uplifting. But the difference there is that in the other trilogy, we're talking about comic books, right? So like the hero and the villain and everything, these are very well established roles. Mm -hmm. The difference is that in this movie, the roles that are supposed to be filled by these people are not something anybody knows what the fuck he's talking about. Like the, the guardian and the guild and the symbolist. These are not things we're all familiar with. It's something that we just found out about like 20 seconds before. Yeah. Like we meet the characters in the apartment complex before we know what the roles are that need to be filled. And then the movie adds all the complex mythology after the fact, like after the characters are established then it tells you what the mythology is and then tries to maneuver the pieces in place. Right. It's like a, it's a giant puzzle and it's like, Oh, like the guild isn't really who we thought the guild was. It's this person. The healer is actually this person. And a kid that reads cereal boxes is going <laughs> to help us. And Paul Giamatti's character is scrambling to get all these pieces together and all these people to believe in like the pattern that he's trying to establish. And they jump right into it. That part's weird, but he also like tries to explain to them, like you all have to trust that this will make sense somehow. Right. And it's kind of like, am I channeling talking to the audience? Like it's, this seems like a mess, but I'm going to try to make it make sense by the end. I think the more you watch it, the more it does click. And perhaps the book has some more background. Mm. (laughs) That's the mystery. But yeah, it's huge. It's huge. It kind of just gives you a glimpse into his brain. Like who can come up with all that shit and just like build off of it and fucking sell it to everybody. Like it's amazing. And I think the key to appreciating it mm-hmm. from my point of view, because I just saw this for the first time. Right. And I did not enjoy it. I really think it's like a really goofy, strange. It's not a normal pattern in how movies are made and how stories are told. And I think what I appreciated about it and what unlocked it for me was that special feature on the menu when he's talking about the book and he's trying to sell you the book. And what he said about it was, and this might be why it's 70 something pages long, is that (laughs) when you tell a bedtime story to your children at night, it starts off as really simple. But if you tell the same story over and over again, you start adding these more details. Right. And then by the time you're telling it for the hundredth time, it has this like whole complex mythology which all fantasy movies have that bullshit. Even science fiction. It's like the Bloof Blarf, uh, <laughs> you know, is supposed to go on a journey and find the crystal schmiff. And then like with a, right. a gnome named Norm, which we talked about last year, like oh, he God. needs to like, get his lumens to like. Uh, <laughs> lumens. And this is no more bullshit than any other fantasy thing we've ever seen. Uh-huh. But the difference is the pattern that the story takes is as if you're telling a bedtime story over and over again. So like. The first time we hear the mythology of the Narf and the Blue World and, you know, man needing to reconnect with whatever offshoot of humanity still lives in the water, it's very simple and it's told in, like, woodcuts and this, like, very quick 20-second fairy tale before the movie even starts in this, like, intro. And then the Korean lady who's always sunbathing by the pool through translating your mother starts adding more and more details to the story and it gets more and more complex, which by the end is it's just spiraled out of fucking control. And it's like the chutzpah to tell a story that convoluted as if it was something everyone was like, okay with. 
and everyone was familiar with. And then to cast yourself as the most important writer in the history of mankind. Like, whether or not you like the movie, you have to, you know, appreciate the ambition of thinking that this is something anyone else would ever want to watch in the first place. Much less think that you're, like, the greatest artist of all time. And I, I really love the, like, spiraling out of his hands ambition of it. Like, nice. it's really fun. I'm glad you liked it and you had fun with it. Yeah. It's it's just such, like, a personable movie where, I don't know, you kind of feel like you're, this when you watch this movie at the end, you're like, this is what M. Night Shyamalan's kids feel like. You know what I mean? Yeah, they're, like, like, punished by his, like, <laughs> spiraling imagination. <laughs> so, it, I don't know. It's just, it's really heartfelt very genuine and it's really beautiful and the the film score is amazing yeah it's so like when you hear it because sometimes i fall asleep to it and then the title menu comes on and it plays it over and over again maybe that's why i think it's so iconic but you you kind of hear it and it's unlike any other film score that i've heard before i think it's on par with like star wars I mean, it's very overreaching it's in that way. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's just it's really and the guy that I can't think of his name, but he really hasn't done much. Oh, the um, um, the composer? composer, yeah, it's it's just really cool. But yeah, it's it's such a good movie, and there's so much to be found in it. This also unlocked for me it's like great. the comparison. I think that I've come to from like watching so many Shyamalan movies is like I think he's like the success story version of Richard Kelly. Who did, you know, Donnie Darko Mm -hmm. and then The Box and Southland Tales. Mm -hmm. So he started off with this, like, sort of, like, well-constructed sci-fi picture that everyone really liked. Or at least had a cult following. Uh And then his two movies after that were just, like, way out of control and, like, too many ideas packed in this, like, tiny vehicle. Like, especially, like, The Box. There's, like, a new twist every, like, ten seconds. And Shyamalan's, like, the success story version of that. Where he keeps making these, like, goofball nerd movies with, like, too many ideas, but most of them keep making money. And so he gets to keep making them, even though, like, people don't like them, it seems like. Like, it seems like there's so many loud people who get mad at them. But you're still going to see it. Yeah, and then people still go out to see it. Yeah. I don't know if it's, like, the promise of the twist or, like, the fact that they're all, like, kind of handsomely staged. Even the goofier ones like this, like, look kind of nice on on the screen. Yeah, it's beautiful. And this is one of the few ones... I'd say this one and The Happening and, you know, Avatar, The Last Airbender, and maybe mm-hmm. After Earth. I, I think those are, like, the most hated ones. I've only seen half of them, and uh, what I'll say is, in, like, a larger picture, I have not seen an M. Night Shyamalan movie yet that I didn't enjoy on some level. Right. Like, I've enjoyed every picture I've watched from him, including this one. I, I don't know that I would say it's one of my favorites the way it's one of your favorites but it is him working in this like very particular goofy unrestrained mode where he is so in love with his own ideas that there's no editor and you kind of have to love that kind of like straight from the id him just doing whatever he wants and not thinking about like anyone like the idea that you would sink this many millions of dollars into a movie about narfs like you (laughs) Like, the fact that he never stopped for a second and thought, like, wow, this is not going to be received well. No, he thought, I'm the greatest writer of all time, and I'm going to cast myself as such in this movie about narfs. And I love that, like, confidence in making, like, the nerdiest goofball fantasy movie I've seen in a long time. Nice. Fun stuff. Yeah, it's so fun. I think everybody should at least see it once. I think you should see it five times in the theater. See it five times in the theater. (laughs) Support it. Buy the special edition DVD. (laughs) 
and purchase the book, which I will be doing probably before I go to bed. I wonder if it's at the library because I feel like our children should be reading this. Support like, your local libraries and support your M. Night Shyamalan's. Yes. <laughs> yes. Did you know the first Superman couldn't even fly? And Metropolis is actually New York City. And what about all the coincidences in what I was reading? Comic books are an obsession. Have you ever been to a comic book convention? They sell teen TV shows there. They are selling things. Your friends and family members have lost their perspective. Comic books are not valid history. So much like the Narfs and the Tatuderics, uh, <laughs> we're going to be talking about the East Rail 177 trilogy, and everybody knows what that is. Everybody. <laughs> Duh. That is the weirdest rebranding I've ever seen for like a franchise. <laughs> and sort of the way that Lady in the Water was you know, gradually expanded and made to look like it knew what it was doing, even though it was like adding more and more new ideas and like retrofitting characters into it. Uh, M. Night Shyamalan's superhero trilogy, uh, which started with Unbreakable and then ended with Glass this year, Mm -hmm. has the same sort of vibe. Like he started with making Unbreakable right after the, The Sixth Sense, which is this like solemn superhero mythology franchise starter Except that it didn't seem like he really wanted to make a franchise. Like, the idea that we call it the East Rail 177 trilogy now is insane. (laughs) Do we? Right. Like, who says that? I looked this movie up on Wikipedia, and it it had a link right to the East Rail 177 trilogy. the Unbreakable movies. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, how would you call it? Would you call it the Unbreakable trilogy? I would call it the Unbreakable trilogy. Because it's the first one, right? That's what it started with, and it's kind of like that's what it ends with. And... It also seems insane that he would he would try to make it seem like he had this grand plan all along because back when this movie was made, these like superhero trilogies and like franchises were not really a thing. And that's something I wanted to bring up too. Like, Unbreakable did not do very well, but it was at a time before like we had the Marvel universe, the DC universe, and just like comic book movies popping off on every corner. So if this movie would have came out like during the heyday of Marvel, like within the past few years, like would it have been better? That's people interesting. Have more interest. Think about, but like also, I think the Sixth Sense was such a huge hit. Yeah. For this like new voice, even though he had made a couple like work for hire like scripts before that, I can't imagine a movie being good enough to like live up to that hype. Like he mm-hmm. was set up to fail from there, and I think Unbreakable is actually him behaving pretty well. Like, Lady in the Water is him losing his goddamn mind. And Unbreakable is him, like, trying to repeat some of the success of The Sixth Sense. So you have, like, Bruce Willis is, like, this really sad man in this, like, uh, failed marriage. He's such a sad man in all these movies. Right. And his son has some, like, uh, Haley Joel Osment energy in this film as well. Yeah, he looks just like him. They have, like, those beady little eyes. And... It's just funny, like, how different this era feels. Like, to say that this trilogy was planned from the outright, which is kind of how M. Night Shyamalan's spinning it now, right. just does not compute. And 
you can get a sense of that immediately in the first movie because it starts with this like text title card sequence telling you like what a comic book is <laughs> that it's still popular and how many people read it every year yeah and it feels like this time capsule of like since this time when he made this you know comic books were sort of this like nerdy subculture still right. but now in 2019 it's this dominant culture like right. you know the chewbacca's parade that came down the street the other year when that first started it was like this like a bicycle yeah it was like the wrong way <laughs> up st charles before another parade and uh -huh. had like no permits or anything and now it is the dominant culture and like star wars and the mcu and mm -hmm. the dceu and all these other like franchises basically own the box office right and unbreakable is definitely not <laughs> that kind of comic book movie at all you know, I have to say, in the tra even though this is like the starting point, this is probably my least favorite movie in this trilogy. <sighs> That's interesting. I I don't know if I have a favorite. I feel like they're <laughs> very different from each other. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's like they don't connect very well until like the end of the last movie, kind of. But it's just really it's weird. It's also weird to try to engage with it as a piece of comic book filmmaking. Mm-hmm. You know, nine years before The Dark Knight made everything, like, really grim and sad. And this movie was already doing it. Yeah. This is the original Dark Knight. Samuel L. Jackson plays this comic book aficionado in the film yeah. named Mr. Glass. And he gives these, like, lectures in an art gallery that he runs where he, like, argues for the value of comic books as fine art. It's completely redundant now. Like, yeah. we know that's not, like, a wild statement anymore. So it's kind of hard to, like, go back to this movie and view it on its own terms in like the context of the year 2000 i think right um, but i did appreciate it i don't think it's bad uh, i think it was just boring i think it's him well behaved like i think yeah. it's him in that sixth sense mode where he's trying to like play it serious he's not fully accepting the goofball tendencies of his work uh yet which by the time yeah. he gets to glass in it's, this year he's he's totally off, off the rails yeah, totally so with unbreakable Mr. Glass or Elijah, Samuel L. Jackson's character. I think it's so interesting how he's this piece of shit, <laughs> but it's not like he's really like, it's like a villainous humanized almost. Yeah, for sure. Where it, it makes you feel so weird where you're like, do I sympathize with him? But he's like a terrorist. Well, and I guess, I guess, yeah, we should say like, we're going to spoil every single in oh, my movie we talk to <laughs> yeah. because we kind of have to, to talk about them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And this I movie's almost seen 20 it. years old by now. Yeah. But you, the, that, that is the twist of the movie is that he is a villain. Yeah. So, you know, the tragedy of his life and everything is explained you know, he, he cannot be touched by another human being without putting his body in risk. And I think the first scene of the movie is him being born in a department <laughs> store. His, like limbs are broken. He's born as a baby that has every bone in his body broken. Like, it's really grim. It's really, yeah. Like, it starts off with that. So you have, like, all this sympathy. And there's even a scene where he's, like, trying to stop somebody from doing something at like a stadium and he falls down the stairs that scene had my heart racing i know and you could just hear his fucking bones breaking and you oh and he's just like this pile of mushy broken bone flesh at the end and you're like god this fucking poor dude he's so smart it's such a weird like complex feeling and like, I, like how I feel for this character. And it's I feel weird. like the idea of like having this character whose bones are like super fragile to the touch 
being named Mr. Glass. Like, I really think that's, like, really brilliant. It has kind of, like, an instantly familiar feel to it. Like, it feels like it belongs in comic books. Uh-huh. Uh, almost like this Professor Xavier kind of vibe. Right. And especially because I think, wasn't it, like, a nickname that bullies would call him? So he, like, took it on and was like, I'm going to make this, like, my persona and my name. And I think this is M. Night Shyamalan, like I said, well-behaving, but it feels like somebody reads a lot of comic books. And this is like, yeah, yeah, that sort of origin story of like the bullies, like on the schoolyard, giving his villain name. Like that feels like somebody who's read a lot of comics. (laughs) They know what's up. And is trying to make them respectable by making this like, sixth sense version of a a comic book story Mm -hmm. the two stories of the villain and the hero are kind of separate you have mr glass uh running this art gallery and trying to convince um bruce willis's character who eventually in the series gets known as the overseer i don't think in the first movie he gets that name no it doesn't really matter it's an origin story for him where like mr glass starts asking him questions like have you ever been sick before can you think of a day you ever called into work because you couldn't make it because of health issues? And it starts to like dawn on him that he is invincible. And we probably should mention the main thing is that he is the lone survivor in this gigantic train crash, which is known as the East Rail 177. Boom. Yeah. So, you know, he's the only survivor. He has like not a scratch on him. And then that's when like it progresses where it's like okay like he's never sick you know he survived this crash that everybody else died in and that's how mr glass finds him in the first place yep which that scene like where the doctor is interviewing him after the train crash and like it's foregrounded there's like the last survivor besides him that's like in surgery and like blood spreads on the uh body as people are working on it while he's like being interviewed solemnly in the background, it's kind of like really well shot. Like, like that's what I'm saying. Like this is still him in sixth sense mode where he still thinks he's the new Hitchcock and like needs to like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, carefully compose each frame. And yeah, I was just really impressed by the filmmaking there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's beautifully shot. Like the, the darkness of this movie is very like present throughout the entire film. Samuel L. Jackson's costume <laughs> are amazing he's halfway prince and halfway frederick Douglass. yes that is his like two <laughs> it's a great combination opposites. and i think what you're saying earlier about how this movie is like the boring one of the trilogy i think that all falls on bruce willis's shoulders yeah because his whole deal as a character is that he's a milquetoast man who's never tested his boundaries before right like how do you not know that you're invincible like how is it not weird where you're like wait i've never been sick like you could shoot you me with a gun it? and I wouldn't feel it. And it, yeah. I think the thing there is that he's just never tested the boundaries of his life before. He's, yeah, you know, he did the right thing. He married his high school sweetheart and had a kid and that's not working out. Had like a little his, beady-eyed brat. <laughs> he had a little Haley Joel Osment Jr. <laughs> and the marriage isn't working out the way he wanted it to. He's like basically is a stranger in his own home. Uh It's not very different than the dynamic in The Sixth Sense where, like, basically it's like a ghost living in the house. He's like haunting his own life. Yeah. (laughs) And his son still has that spark of imagination where he's like, you are a superhero. Right. And he, along with uh, Mr. Glass, is trying to convince him to, like, come into his own and, like, fulfill his origin story. Yeah. I wasn't bored by this movie. I thought it was really well done. Yeah. I don't know. It's bored. It might. I think it might be boring because of where the movies go after that. You're right. I think that's why. I think because, like, 
I knew what was down the road. And, you know, and like you were saying, it's like M. Night Shyamalan just kind of loses it towards the end where it just becomes like it's intense. And then the last movie is just like insane. Right. So I'm like, I'm wanting that. So whenever I'm watching this, it's way more toned down. Oh, yeah. I guess I saw that as boring, but maybe I'm being too harsh. I mean, the the movie has goofy touches. Because it is more of an origin. And origin stories aren't very like... They're not that interesting. Intense. No, it's just, it's more informational. And we've seen more of them since this has come out than we need to see in our lifetime, I think. Yeah, uh, probably. <laughs> and the movie does have goofy touches. Like when Mr. Glass's mom buys him his first comic book, she's like, I hear this one has a twist ending. <laughs> yeah. And he's like kind of winking to the camera in that way. <laughs> but this is definitely a subdued, like, I think I'm going to win another Oscar with a superhero movie. And it's like, no, dude, you've already gone off the deep end. Like. You should just fully embrace your, like... You're just a funky dude, side. yeah. So, earlier we said, like, oh, we're going to give away some twists uh, in this, like, episode. Because you kind of have to, like, reveal all the things. Yeah, or else you, you're not going to talk about the movie at all. I think even just mentioning the next film in the series is a twist, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, this is Split from 2017. Yes. This was Swamp Flex's number seven movie of that year so this was in our top 10 yeah. for that year it's a good fucking movie i thought so too yeah i love this movie and the twist of the movie is that it's an unbreakable sequel <laughs> <laughs> which i like i went into this movie not knowing that at all because i mean unbreakable had left my memory at this point when split came out where i'm like oh james mcavoy who's one of my favorite actors is playing somebody that has 24 personalities and it's a thriller. Yeah, I'm going to go see it. So I, I went to see it. And then I'm like, why is Bruce Willis in here? And then I'm like, oh, that Unbreakable movie? <laughs> yeah. So it was so weird. Split is this like standalone, you know, women in captivity horror film. And right. the last scene of the movie is Bruce Willis <laughs> just in a diner watching a news story about the events of the first movie. And something I didn't catch in the theater at the time, because I hadn't seen Unbreakable since the year 2000. Yeah. Was... That they play the score from Unbreakable. This, like, sort of, like, trip-hop music. There's, like, all kinds of connections. Like, watching Split. Because I haven't watched Split since it came out. So when I watched it for this, it was just kind of like, oh, my God. Like, all this shit. Like, I don't even know if I should bring it up now. Like, I just kind of want to spill it all out. Go ahead. Okay. At the end of the movie, over the police radio, they're talking about, um, what's her face? They're like, oh, we need to get Dr. Karen Fletcher. Who's like in glass? Wait, I didn't catch that yeah. at all. That's when crazy. Anya Teller Joy is in the police car, you can hear them talking about Dr. Karen Fletcher over the radio. Uh, that was out of my. And then I always thought it was weird in the movie because before he turns into the beast for the first time, James McAvoy's character, he buys flowers and then puts them by the train. And yeah, I was and like, why the... is he doing that? And you don't find out why he does that until the end of glass. It's so weird. Yeah, it's stuff that like. You wouldn't really think to connect, but he, yeah, you could tell like this. In retrospect, it's like, oh, his dad left him at the train station. Right. That They mentioned that, and you're like, oh, that's like kind of a standard. I mean, movie that happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it happens to like tragic supervillains. Right. So it's just kind of, but then you find out there's way more meaning to this, and then he turns into like the beast for the first time on the train, and then you know, like it all, everything starts to make more sense. So obviously at this time, like, what the fuck made in Night Shyamalan be like, what if I make a movie called Split? 
and it'll actually be a villain for you know David's character in Unbreakable and I'll just like throw all this weird shit in and then I'll make another movie after that <laughs> that'll tie it all together yeah that's cool well, like it's so crazy here's the other question though like what does that really change about Split like not knowing those things like not remembering it, those things like about Unbreakable saying, it's a standalone movie like, it f- works perfectly it's fine, fine. On its own. you can like not watch any of them and watch any of these I would and it'll be say, okay. <laughs> I don't think you could watch Glass by itself. You don't think so? No. Okay. I think you can. You would miss a lot of things, but you kind of get the gist of it. I don't think it would be as good. No, maybe. you're right. I think Split and Unbreakable work on their own. Mm-hmm. Split in particular, like, I didn't really remember anything from Un- Unbreakable, and I thought the movie was very good. And actually, I think it's my favorite movie in the trilogy. Unbreakable? Split. Oh, Split. Fuck. Yeah, me too. Okay, good. Yeah, I like Split a lot. <laughs> <Okay>. Sorry. <laughs> And, you know, it's like handsome M. Night Shyamalan filmmaking mm-hmm. again. It looks really nice. There's, like, a lot of really interesting shots. And I think something else it has in common with Unbreakable is that there's these separate tracks. Yeah. So, like, the same way that Mr. Glass and the Overseer in Unbreakable have these, like, separate origin stories, Split has these two separate tracks as well. You have James Vacavoy playing this character who's later known as the Horde uh once, yes. he, once he's revealed as a supervillain, he has this whole a plot where he has kidnapped three teenage girls and keeps them in a basement in and what's, zoo. what's later revealed to be the zoo <laughs> one of them's anya taylor joy one is Haley the richardson and i don't know who the third one is but they're they're all very good actors and yeah that's a really good movie by itself right then you have this b plot that's this therapist talking about his condition and she feels entirely separate from that entire plot. And he pops in almost as like a cameo every now and then uh, in, in her world. Right. But she's basically making a case that he doesn't have normal DID split personalities. He has something else that's a little extra. Right. Like when he turns personalities, like his strength changes and like his body actually changes and things like that. And it's almost like, I don't know, I find she kind of looks at him as like this like weird science experiment where she's like going to conferences about him and things like that. And there's like hints there that this is a superhero comic that you don't catch the first time, but in retrospect, it feels like a joke. Like this other therapist is like bucking against her and she's like, you speak of these people as if they have like superpowers. Uh, and then there's this other part where she's giving a lecture and she's like, have these individuals through their suffering unlocked the uh, hidden power of the brain? Yeah. That's <laughs> insane. And that does connect with Unbreakable. Yeah. Like, in Unbreakable, Mr. Glass's, like, repeated bone-breaking incidents Ugh. have, like, unlocked this, like, hidden power for him. Bruce Willis, as a child, was bullied and almost drowned, and that's where his... Uh, superpowers come from and also his greatest weakness like water is his kryptonite or whatever right right and just the structure of the two movies feels similar like in that one bruce willis and and, uh samuel jackson are these two separate tracks that converge at the end and then in this one the therapist and the girls in captivity are separate until they converge at the end yeah yeah the difference i think is that Bruce Willis in Unbreakable is this like somber guy who's very milk toast and like sad and like grim and like bringing the mood down and like taking things very seriously. James McAvoy in Split, who's commanding most of the runtime, is so out of control. Like totally. He's playing 24 different characters as if they're 24 different like SNL personalities. Yeah. Like one is like 
this uptight school marm and one is like a young child. He's got this like creepy germaphobe character. He's also got yeah. this like sort of fey fashion designer. Barry. Barry. It's, that's, you know, I was going to just mention that's my favorite one. <laughs> like, I feel like when he's Barry, I'm like, Barry would be somebody that I could like hang out with and connect with. It's like New Jersey fashion designer. <laughs> And then he also does like this layered thing where he sometimes plays characters playing other characters. Yeah. So like he'll be Dennis, who is the uptight germaphobe, pretending to be Barry. And it's like this like layered thing. It's basically just an actor's showcase. Yeah. Like if you ever need a convincing argument that um, James McAvoy is a good actor, maybe the characters he's playing in this are a little broad. Yeah. But the way he can switch effortlessly between them and then like layer them where like one is pretending to be the other and you can tell based on his body language, like it's pretty fucking impressive. He's great. What I thought was so cool about this movie is it doesn't feel scary. You don't think so? I mean, it feels weird. Like it it feels off, but it's not like as creepy as you think it would be. Like I remember watching it for the first time and the beginning was so weird in broad daylight in a fucking parking lot full of cars he manages to like i'm assuming he kills him like the father of this girl who's like bringing his daughter and her friends to like the mall or something and then he just like gets in the car and they're like oh you're in the wrong car and then he calmly just kind of abducts three teenagers abducts. it's so weird like it just felt like i should have been like oh my god what's wrong with him but he's so i don't know i was just kind of like oh that just doesn't feel right <laughs> i wouldn't say the captivity part is scary so much as it's sleazy it's got yeah. this like sleazy like young teenagers locked in under this like guy's thumb yeah. and he one of the personalities keeps asking them to strip because their like clothes get soiled god and the movie's playing a very delicate game there where like it's off-putting and it it's creepy in the way that like movies like The Baby are creepy. Like it's like tapping into this like very uncomfortable like pedophile kind of yeah. shit that nobody likes. And there's another line of um, trauma in the film that's right uh, explicitly about pedophilia. And a lot of people think this movie is you know irresponsible in the way it deals with those themes. And I can't necessarily say they're wrong. Right. I just think it uses that exploitation throwback to reach some like weird new aesthetic it's weird and anya taylor joy like her character's relationship with the horde or real name kevin wendell crumb rumpelstiltskin um, rumpelstiltskin <laughs> he sounds like oh my god this is like another fairy tale he probably told his fucking kids For before sure. bed kevin wendell crumb has this personality and then every night he just added another one and then that's how split was made they were 10 years older so you could throw in some like uh steamier aspects yeah (laughs) yeah like one's a weird little kid and then one's a pedophile um (laughs) jesus christ but her connection with him is really interesting like it doesn't feel like romantic she fears him, but she's, like, intrigued by him at the same time. Like, she wants to understand him. Like, in the car, like, it takes forever for her to attempt to get out the car. And she's just kind of, like, I don't know if she's, like, in a state of shock or if she's, like, feeling this connection. I think she's biding her time. I think that's the difference between her and the two other captives. Uh-huh. Is that they have never had adversity in their lives, really. Mm. And that's what his whole thing is he's railing against is, like, the world that has not experienced trauma the way I have because he was abused as a kid is not prepared. They're like, 
not evolved enough. Right. Uh, and she takes her time and sort of studies him and like waits for her moment to act. Right. Because she also had this like trauma as a kid. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the film, they have a connection because they both see each other's pain in each other's eyes. Right. And I think that's what's sort of unfulfilled by this series so far is uh, if his trauma unlocked this uh, super villain power with him to become the beast, which is his ultimate, like all powerful form. And if Bruce Willis almost drowning unlocked his thing and the bones break for Mr. Glass, why is Anya Taylor joy not a superhero in this like series yet? Right. Cause she's experienced something just as fucking awful. As and any she's of them. like his, I don't know. I think like, well, and this gets into glass where it's like each character has their like support person. And I feel like if the series goes any uh, further, those support people are going to be superheroes, which I would love to see that. I don't know if it's coming or not, but I find that hilarious. Who knows? I mean, it might come out 20 years from now, just like what he did with fucking... Oh, yeah. I plan this to be a quadrilogy the whole time. Yeah. He's just going to keep revamping it. I feel like he'll be like on his deathbed and is just like... Wait, we need another one. We need another spinoff of something. And I, I hope something like that does happen because mm-hmm. Anya Taylor-Joy is one of the best actors. Yeah. As far as like young people acting right now, she is so fucking good. Yeah, Dakota Fanning who? Like, <laughs> fuck all that. Hey, I like Elle Fanning. She was she's in The great. Neon Demon. <laughs> yeah, true. But, but yeah, she's so, like, Anya Taylor-Joy is so great. And she's been picking a lot of weird genre films like this and The Witch. And Thoroughbreds. Thoroughbreds is great. So good. The Miniaturist, which was that PBS miniseries she did recently. Oh, you haven't seen that? No. Please watch that. Okay. It's like spooky gothic horror about this like haunted miniature thing. Oh my God. Okay. It's so good. Okay. Done. But anyway, she picks great projects. People always use her very well. I think the series started to use her very well. Yeah. Especially in Split, she has a lot of good like reactions to the weirdness that Kevin Wendell Crumb is throwing at her. But I kind of wish she was like a full-blown superhero by the end of this. And that doesn't come yet, so I'm hoping there's more to come later. And the way, yeah, I think of the, the way the end of this whole trilogy is let off, like, it's not the end. There's no way. Maybe there'll be a new trilogy? It's weird because I feel like it's left on this exact note where it could go either way. I feel like he's trying to build a universe. I feel like he's closed... The door and the three films that came before it, but he's also left, you know, like you said, this universe. Oh my God, it's like gonna be like the on. Star Wars of our generation. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's really like prequels. Yes. Oh God. <laughs> and if there's anybody insane enough to like uh, go back and like do six more movies on this like scene thread, it's this guy. Totally, totally. <laughs> so I guess we should probably talk about where the series left off by now, which is yes. Glass. Yes. Which was the number one movie in America for like four weeks. <laughs> You're kidding. No, it I didn't was like know a that. Huge hit. Okay, because I think I wasn't paying attention to like any numbers, but you know, I watched it and then I'm like, what are the critics saying? And everyone was shitting on it, but I did not know that it did like financially well. That is the M. Night Shyamalan story right now. <sighs> like everyone so great. gets very loudly dissenting about his work and then it makes so much money that he gets to keep making it, which I think is like so fun. <laughs> right, which is cool because I feel like we're the kind of people that like appreciate this shit more than like like I would rather watch like Glass win an Oscar than what's that Lady Gaga movie? A Star is Born. Like oh, for sure. I would totally rather see that win. <laughs> yeah, I think this is a very specific like goofball genre film sensibility. Yeah. 
it's especially specific to him. Like, I don't think anyone else could have made this movie. And I think that <laughs> goes into like uh, the MCU and stuff too. Like the way that this sort of like superhero franchise filmmaking has developed since he made unbreakable in 2000, we have this like sort of routine version of superhero filmmaking where we know what to expect from the movie before we even watch it. And glass had me like, guessing the entire time like what the fuck is going to happen five minutes from now like you have no idea what direction it's going to go into because the beginning of the film like really starts it's focused on david and you know he him and his son are kind of like this duo that finds crime and brings some vigilante street justice and almost immediately like he runs into kevin wendell crumb aka the horde aka the beast like this guy has so many names and they have this huge like showdown in a brick factory in a brick factory with some more like captured women (laughs) and i'm like okay and then it they get caught so it's just kind of like we like after that happened i was like whoa this is not gonna be what i think it's gonna be and then from there you have all three of the main like superhero characters so you have like bruce willis james mcavoy Samuel L. Jackson, yes. two of which are have been in superhero movies since then, right? Like James McAvoy has played Professor X in a bunch of X Men oh, yeah, movies, yeah, yeah. and uh, Nick Fury is uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character in all those Marvel films. And Bruce Willis, he was in, was he in Sin City? Is that a su- that's not like a superhero movie, but it's kind of. I can't think of a superhero a movie comic he was book in. Movie. But the two of them have been in a bunch. Yeah, uh, you have them in a facility after we've already seen them in two movies. Be explained to us, like, these are definitely super people. Like, these are not normal people. There's, like, superhuman aspects to them. And then you have Sarah Paulson playing this therapist. And her entire job is to gaslight them and tell them they're not super people, even though we know they are. It's weird how she does it because she's like, you're a disease. But, like, it doesn't have a name. It's like the superhero syndrome. <laughs> like, what is it? It's uh, delusions of grandeur, but it's a very specific version right. of it that she specializes in. People who think they're comic book characters. It had me believing it because then you start questioning it. The way she explains it, she's like, when you were shot with bullets, the bullets were, you know, in a moldy basement. So they were weak. And then the bars were kind of... I don't know. Like she had like all these reasonings to be like, is oh, like are they really superheroes? So or? she's gaslighting them and the audience to yeah. question everything we've seen before. Uh, and if there's anybody that would have that twist where it's like actually everything you've seen is a lie, it, it is him. Yeah. Like he could do that. That's what I thought he was gonna do. Yeah, that's real. I really thought like oh, this whole everything's been a lie. Split has been a lie. Unbreakable has been a lie. But then like another twist. I don't know. I can't even talk about all the twists. And the way that she is, like, talking them down and, like, sort of ruining the fun of, like, the two movies we've seen before. Like, she's, like, reality checking us and be like, this shit couldn't fucking happen. Uh, Right. It's very much like the dynamic in Unbreakable where the villain is, like, hiding in plain sight. Like, of course, uh, Mr. Glass is, like, this, like, arch villain that's, you know, got a uh, supervillain origin story that we didn't know we were watching until the end. Like, of course, this, like psychiatrist who like is trying to convince all these people that they're not super even though we know they are is like the villain of the story right and that's the big twist at the end of this one it's a little obvious but it's obvious in the same way that unbreakable was and it's also obvious in the same way that like comic books are Mm -hmm. like we know what these like characters are and we know that her position as like the head of this like government facility 
is not gonna like be good <laughs> like she she is gonna eventually reveal this like other layer to what's going on which is the big reveal is insane it right is insane it's so it's crazy and i didn't make that i didn't feel it coming until like it actually like happened like i didn't predict it i didn't predict the world that he was gonna sketch out i just knew that she was hiding something right like uh, i thought that something was gonna happen where like they were going to prove her wrong or something like that. Like I thought that was going to be the big reveal, but it wasn't. Another fun <laughs> thing I think is the way that M. Night Shyamalan trolls the audience in this is that the way that Samuel Jackson is going to prove to the world that superheroes exist is to stage this big showdown at this, like, you know, coming out party for this new building downtown. This big Philadelphia building. <laughs> First of all, this is on a Bloom house budget. So, they can't afford that shit. I was, I thought it was going to happen. <laughs> I know. It's so fucking funny. It's trolling you so hard because you expect this like big, you know, MCU climax. the mental hospital Instead, parking lot. it's like lot. a fight in a parking lot. It's like the world star version of this like kind of showdown. <laughs> yeah. Like after that happened, I'm like, so are they still going to the building? Nope. <laughs> it, just, it never happens. And as like cheap as, as this movie is. He finds ways to shoot things interestingly. Like there's like, these twisty shots where like, the camera's literally like spiraling. And uh-huh. there's like these body mounted cameras during the uh, fights that like really feel visceral. But he also like cuts corners financially in this like really obvious way where like Bruce Willis's character is, you know, deathly afraid of water to keep him in check at this like <laughs> facility. They set up this whole like sprinkler system to like douse him in water and this big like dirty water tank and they can't afford it they can't afford showing him getting drenched so they just show the tank emptying outside uh it's the same thing as the tower then they can't afford the big showdown so they just show you this like parking lot brawl instead i find that like audience trolling so funny right and like I don't like superhero movies, but like this is my kind of superhero showdown is a parking lot brawl. I'd rather that than people flying and, you know, jumping from building to building. It just feels very nerdy and awkward and like sort of haphazardly thrown together based on like what you can afford on a Bloomhouse yeah. scale. It's like backyard wrestling. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> the backyard wrestling of superhero movies. And I think that has like more of a personality to it than uh-huh. most Marvel films. Or... Oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. And that's not to say that the movie is like really well thought out or anything. It's a fucking goofy. Like this is more him in the lady in the water mode uh, than it is him in like the sixth sense mode like if you want the sixth sense Shyamalan you watch unbreakable but if you want like lady in the water Shyamalan (laughs) or he's just like completely full of himself and thinks he can get away with anything glass glass. totally yeah either glass or the happening there aren't many other ways for you to go (laughs) so can we talk about the most changed character in this whole franchise who would you believe that it is Jai which is oh oh my god this whole podcast has been leading up to this moment (laughs) I didn't even know his character had a name. That's amazing. <laughs> it's Jai. Because I was like, does he have a name? But he's credited as Jai. I don't even think they say his name. Um, so that probably has some weird fucking meaning behind it, too, that I don't even think I want to know. But he's an unbreakable. He's like a drug dealer that gets caught at a um, football stadium. stadium. A football stadium. And then he's a security guard. For the building of the therapist and split. Where he has a very long monologue about Hooters hot wings. Like it's weirdly philosophical. (laughs) It's bizarre. 
And then in Glass, he's completely turned around and he's like this reformed criminal. And he is a customer at the security camera store (laughs) that David um, and his son run. So this is insane. Like, (laughs) this is on the level of Lady in the Water, like him billing himself as like the most important writer of all time. Yeah. Uh, Usually he has a cameo in movies. Like, even in The Sixth Sense, he plays like a doctor that has seen Haley Joel Osment. Yeah. Uh, But... This goes in with what we were saying earlier about, like, the preposterousness of him having planned out this whole trilogy the whole time. Like, for him to claim that he had thought this, like, character that is in one scene as a drug dealer in Unbreakable, and this other (laughs) character is a security guard in Split, who has a completely different personality. Right. Are actually the same person. And then does the work in the third movie to connect them as if anybody fucking cares. Like I was laughing really hard in the audience because he has this whole line explaining to Bruce Willis like, Oh, didn't, didn't I see you before at the football stadium 20 years ago? Uh, he used to say, he says like, I used to hang out with some really shady types down there, but I really turned my life around <laughs> through the power of positive thinking and getting a job as a security guard. <laughs> Maybe that was his step into becoming, like, like a functional member of society. Yeah. <laughs> Insane. And it's so fucking funny that it has to be intentionally funny to me. Like, yeah. there's no it's person so who would come up with that and think that it actually had, like, some dramatic payoff that people would care about. It's him fucking having fun with his, like, toys. Oh, totally. And it's so fun to watch. And... Really, I was the only person in my audience who got a laugh out of that, and I don't care. Like, I think it was brilliant <laughs> that he did it. I wish more people would laugh when it happened, but just the hubris of, like, thinking that anyone would possibly care about this, like, character's arc across three films is so great. And, like, fits in with the whole um, just larger idea that, like, he had all this planned all along, and he's not just sort of slapping it together, like, Lady in the Water style, and just, like, adding in new wrinkles, like, as he goes along and pretending that it was all part of this grand plan right it's so fucking funny and there's other lines too that i was laughing at a lot like when sarah paulson gathers all the loved ones of the super people and is like have you ever been to a comic book convention they sell teen drama shows there they're selling stuff to you this is not real history she has these like sort of like philosophical over the top ruminations on like the nature of comic books right that read as like intentional humor to me right they also build in this new device where there's these flashing lights that um, trigger James McAvoy to switch yes. through all 24 of his personalities. And it's even more of a blatant actor showcase where he just likes to show off like how quickly he can like filter through these like personalities. The it mo- feels like an iPod on shuffle. It was, yeah. It's really weird. The movie is really weird. And it's it has a, a lot weird of weird movie. personality. And I can't help but love that there's this like goofball who keeps doing shit like this and keeps making so much money that people can't help but like give him more movies even though they all get bad reviews yeah Yeah. i've become a huge fan of this guy in the last like three weeks (laughs) awesome yeah because like i i love this whole like fucking you know unbreakable trilogy shit so much uh i think you mean the east rail 177 (laughs) trilogy well so first of all like they throw amtrak's name on that train like it's you know in our face and i'm like 
this train crashed. Like, that's really bad. Yeah, why would you want that? Like, I don't know if I want to get on an Amtrak train. Because I don't crashed because wanna... the terrorists blew it up. I mean. Oh, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> it was running fine otherwise. <laughs> Never mind. But yeah, I, I thought that was kind of cool how, you know, Elijah or Mr. Glass, like, really created both of them with that train crash. Like, Kevin Wendell Crumb had, got DID from having his father die in that train crash. And was stuck with his abusive mother, and that's how he became the beast. So therefore, like Elijah created the beast, and then he created David because he helped David see his powers. It's kind of a twofer. Yeah, but uh, you know, a shit ton of innocent people die. But whatever, like <laughs> you know. And I think that's where the series is open ended for like it's more crazy. sequels. Is that like the conceit that any trauma can trigger this like superhuman ability in us, right. and like. You know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, but multiplied by a thousand. There's a lot of room for characters we've seen already and for other characters we haven't even met yet to, like, follow that trail. Right. Even though I think that if it ends here, he brought it to a pretty, you know, clear close as far as, like, the three stories we saw but so then, far. Like, I guess, I mean, we've fucking spoiled the shit out of everything so far. Like, yeah. the end of this movie, it's almost like, so Samuel L. Jackson's mother... She's dealt with a lot of trauma having to raise a son like that. And I can't even think of his name, but Bruce Willis' son. Yeah. The tall Haley Joel Osment. He had to deal with, like, you know, his mother dying. And then, you know, his Watching dad his dad drown. Drown a puddle in a parking lot. And then Anya Teller-Joy dealing with, like, her personal trauma with, like, her uncle. And then, like you know, developing a connection with someone to watch them get destroyed. Like, it's like, oh, like, so are they going to be like the new? I think that's where the series could go. Yeah. And I want to see that only because I'd like the idea of seeing Annie Taylor-Joy play a superhero. I would like to see um, an elderly African-American woman be a superhero. Elderly-ish. I mean, well, I mean, she's like fake old. <laughs> they like age her in the film oddly and then give her these like fake wigs. and She's probably like younger stuff. than Samuel L. Jackson. Oh, she is by she a few is, right? years. Okay, yeah. cool. Not by a lot, but like by right. a few years. Like not old enough to be his mother. But it'd be cool to see her, like, or at someone dressed up as an elderly woman. Yeah, kicking ass. <laughs> like I would love that. Hey, old lady drag is a uh, legitimate art form. Yes, <laughs> she's agreed. Doing it. it's... She's doing it really well. That old bitty drag. <laughs> I don't know. Really like the series. I think mm-hmm. you get a full grasp of M Night Shyamalan. Like on Unbreakable, you get this like. Sixth Sense, like, playing by the rules, trying to, like, be the new Hitchcock, like, serious Shyamalan, even though it's still goofy as fuck at the seams. Uh, and then Glass, you have him, like, full the happening, lady in the water, like, lost his damn mind, just doing whatever he feels like Shyamalan. Yeah. Like- and then split somewhere in the middle, like, maybe the best of both worlds. And you can watch that one on its own. You can watch Unbreakable on its own. I think Glass maybe needs the benefit of You're the You're right. Two. I mean, you could potentially, but like you said, it wouldn't be as enjoyable on its own but i would love to know like what happened between that 17 year span between unbreakable and split that he like formulated this huge like connecting movie to make an like what was going through his head like what was his process like what was going on i would love to know that and i would love to know how he justifies kevin wendell crumb being like 17 to 23 maybe somewhere in that span if you think about the timeline of it because james mcavoy is not oh, that young right <laughs> it does not make sense like, chronologically like in his 40s huh who cares whatever like, yeah but, and then why kevin wendell crumb 
It's such like a weird name. It's got like a fairy tale aspect to it. Like it reminds me of Rumble uh, Stiltskin, which was kind of right. joking about earlier. Yeah. Like uh, if I know your name, then you're powerless against me or whatever. So uh, it has to be a pretty like funky old world style name. Right. It's very British. Kevin Wendell Crumb of Yorkshire. <laughs> <laughs> right. Have yeah. you got any pudding? <laughs> well, I don't know. I've become a big fan of this guy. I think this is a good like capsule of his stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been watching a lot of his like classic era stuff. I haven't seen a movie yet that I ha- I don't appreciate from him, so maybe Me either. when this is over, I'll go back and watch Avatar The Last Airbender. And I have not seen that one. I've heard it's just unenjoyable, but I keep hearing that a lot about these movies, and I, I don't believe it to be true. Good, yeah, so <laughs> that would be like your new favorite movie or something. Well, in two weeks, we'll come back at you with a second M. Night Shyamalan episode. Yes, that's going to be awesome. And, uh... I don't even really have anything else to add. I hope I everyone mean, has a good Oscar season and a good Mardi Gras. Good Oscar season and a good Valentine's Day or Shyamalan-entine's Sham- day. I mean, that's in the past by the time you're hearing this. Oh, but no, but I think like what if every year for Valentine's Day, like Swamp Flicks can do like some kind of M. Night Shyamalan like. So you're cursing us to watch The Last Airbender next year is what I'm hearing. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Oh my god, yeah. Valentine's so, Day curse. Valentine's Day next year. <laughs> Last Airbender. Looking forward to it. Woohoo. Bye everybody. Bye. Bye.